politics, football, faith, and theology. You're listening to Podcast, and I'm your host, Daniel. Today, I am joined by my lovely wife, Rebecca. Hello, and welcome to our little corner of America on 4th of July. Today is Independence Day 2019. We are celebrating the 243rd anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. 243 is a pretty exciting number. It's one of my favorites, actually, because it's a power of three, three to the fifth. Uh, that's that's pretty nice. And uh, actually, when I first joined the math honorary at, at Hillsdale College, I was number 243 to join, so it, it's an exciting number. Anyway, um, I like the number, and I will never be 243 years old. I'm probably going to die before that, so this is the first time I ever get to celebrate the 243rd an- anniversary of anything, and also probably the last. Um, okay, so today we want to talk about uh, what, how Christians should view uh, being American, patriotism, stuff like that, right? Yes. Um, so we have uh, a few a few things we've done. Um, wh- wh- where, where should we start, Rebecca? Let's talk about what are our favorite things about being American. All right, yes. Yeah, so, um, well, I want to I want to first uh, I'll get there really soon. I want to go to First Timothy uh, chapter two, and we're going to talk about this uh, in a little bit because there uh, about this time a month ago there were two prominent uh, evangelical pastors who both uh, referenced this passage in, in uh, slightly different ways, also similar ways, and, and we're going to talk about that. Uh, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. All right, so um, so we're going to talk in a little bit about uh, Franklin Graham and David Platt and how both of them have used that passage. Um, I guess as a spoiler, we, we like David Platt's way of using it a little bit better. <laughs> um, but, I mean, I mean, Franklin Graham, I think, has some stuff he's right about as well. Um, but So we're, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, but for now, I, w- I want to point out this this word thanksgivings. So what are we supposed to to be making uh, for all people, and particularly for kings? Prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. So, one, so we're not just supposed to be praying for our leaders. We're also supposed to be thanking God for them. And I think uh, it also is appropriate to be thanking God for the country that we live in, for the freedoms that we enjoy. And I want to talk right now about some things we're thankful for about living in America. One of my favorite things about being an American is religious freedom. It's something, there are many things that Americans have gotten wrong. Sometimes they're the same things that other countries have gotten wrong, and sometimes they're different things. But one thing that America really stands out is its commitment to the idea of religious freedom. And I'm one of millions of American citizens who respect this ideal, but I want to talk a little bit about why I think that it's important. And I think that one of the things that it creates is that it's a society, you know, it's no secret that much of history has been plagued by wars relating to various religions. And in America, we've managed to avoid that. And we've also created an environment where people can respect their consciences. And even if I disagree about what should bother another person's conscience, 
as Americans, we've tried to cultivate an atmosphere of respect. And I think that that goes back to the first Timothy passage and that, that the goal, it, this, it, it doesn't really say this, you know, as overtly, but the goal is living peaceful and quiet lives. And then as Christians, then we want to, to, uh, you know, bring that into the service of Christ. But I think that passage has a little bit of light on what should be the goal of the body politic. And I think peaceful and quiet lives is what that is. And an ideal of religious freedom tries to allow people to live peaceful and quiet lives, to follow their consciences, and to do what they think is the best thing to do, of course, subject to the common good. Unsurprisingly, religious freedom is also at the top of my list um, as a Christian and as just somebody who uh, cares about um, freedom overall. Uh, religion is one of the most fundamental parts of a lot of people's lives, both uh, for Christians, of course, but also even for people who are of other religions. And uh, there is really no more fundamental freedom freedom of religion and it's very meaningful and personal to me as well i also want to point out that religious freedom also means the freedom to not have a religion and of course that that was less common when america was first started but a lot of laws recently have been passed saying that if you object to certain things for moral or ethical reasons even if there aren't religious re reasons that you shouldn't be coerced to do them like indiana passed a bill recently that said that if you have moral or ethical objections to doing anything that would perform an abortion, you don't have to do it. And I think that that's still in line with that ideal of religious freedom, that we don't want to coerce people to violate their consciences. So even atheists, you're saying, who still morally object to abortion, but obviously not for religious grounds, they can't say, I'm, I'm Jewish, so I can't do this, or I'm Muslim or Christian, so I can't do this, but they still have that freedom of conscience. So, like, we're actually broadening the ideal of religious freedom to be a, a freedom of conscience overall, where even if you have a conscientious objection and you can't point to a specific religion, we still, in America, we try to respect that as much as possible. Yeah, and I think part of another bedrock of this ideal is that no one can tell you what your religious beliefs entail. No one can say, well, I read the Quran, and the Quran doesn't say that. I read a, an advice column um, a few years ago that talked about a Muslim chauffeur who didn't wish to carry wine for the customers. And he ended up being fired by the chauffeur company for whom he worked, which... Obviously, th they do have the right to do that, but his freedom to do that should still be respected. He may have to find another place of work if, if carrying wine is an essential part of the job, but no, one, no other Muslim or no, no government official should be able to tell him that, no, carrying wine is not a violation of the Quran. He needs to get to be the judge of what his religion entails, and, and that, that is an American ideal. And I believe what happened in this situation was the person who fired him was also Muslim and disagreed with his interpretation of the Quran because the driver thought that it was wrong to carry alcohol uh, for this customer into this party or whatever. And the owner of the company was also Muslim, and he said, well, I don't believe that that does violate our religion, and so I'm going to fire you for it. But I think the point you're trying to make is that every person individually ought to be able to decide for himself or herself what the obligation of conscience and religion is. Yes, yes, that's, that's what I'm saying. And again, we have to think about why this is important. 
it's obviously when we when we establish this as a bedrock ideal, people are going to have convictions regarding their consciences that we don't agree with or even that we might think is silly. Uh, one of my favorite Supreme Court cases is about uh, was around the time of World War Two and is about a Jehovah's Witness who decided which parts of tank assembly he was comfortable with as a pacifist, which at what point he thought, okay, if I put this particular part in, I'm violating my ideals of pacifism. And, and he was able to decide that and was able to work out something with the company. And again, the company does have some say over obviously who they're employing, but the Supreme Court tried to h help navigate um, the, those issues. And so we think about why, why would we even want to have this ideal? And it's because it allows people to live those peaceful and quiet lives. It allows them to pursue happiness and to seek the truth. And maybe they may not always come to what we think is the right answer, but it enables that pursuit. Now, I think it's important when we're talking about religious freedom or any freedom that is especially encoded in the Bill of Rights or something like that, to distinguish that, that there is th there are two things going on when we talk about religious freedom or when we talk about freedom of speech, first of all, there's the legal right that we have. We have a legal right to practice uh, and exercise whatever religion we choose, but then we also there's also a cultural ideal of freedom of religion that's not, that's not the same thing as what's in the Constitution. So, for example, when this uh, Uber driver was fired, was it an Uber driver, a taxi driver, chauffeur, a uh, sh uh, chauffeur, um, when he was fired uh, by this uh, other Muslim, the Constitution was not violated there because the U.S. Constitution doesn't say that a company can't fire somebody because of their religious convictions. However, the, the cultural ideal of religious freedom was violated there. And so there are two things going on. And when we say that we're grateful to be Americans because of religious freedom, I think we mean both of those things. I think we mean that we're grateful that the First Amendment guarantees us the right to exercise our religion without freedom, uh, with freedom of from fear of punishment from the government, but then also we're grateful to live in a culture that values and respects religious freedom. Although, of course, we do have exceptions like this where uh, it's not respected, but I think overall in the culture there's an ideal of religious freedom and also freedom of speech. Uh, the same thing goes there. Um, that's number two on my list. So... I actually have religious reasons for thinking that freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, those concepts are a good thing. And I would say, from the perspective of the human person, our ability to think and to choose is something given to us by God. It's one of our most fundamental human capacities. And so to enable people to have the freedom to think and choose, e again, as I said, they're not always going to come to the right conclusions, but to give them that freedom is to enable them to, to live out, give, give them as many opportunities as possible to live out their human potential of, of thinking, knowing, reasoning beings. Now, another thing that I have on, another thing that I have on my list is uh, the Second Amendment also. Um, of course, the First Amendment is my favorite, although maybe the Ninth or Tenth. Uh, it would also be up there. But uh, the Second Amendment is also really important to me. Uh, one of the things I'm grateful for is the freedom to own and bear arms. And when I am uh, at a shooting range, I don't do this very often, but I have done it with, with family, with friends. When I go to a shooting range and I'm shooting a rifle, a pistol, uh, there's something about that that 
makes me feel more than any other time like I live in a free country. Do you feel that when you go? Yes, I think the idea is that the government isn't the sole per the entity in charge of uh, weaponry, that, that citizens are trusted to use those responsibly. And obviously, and, and, and tragically, that's not always the case. But it's an American ideal that freedom and responsibility will go together and that citizens can be trusted to protect themselves and to protect others. And we also have to think about one of the main purposes of the Second Amendment was as a way to defend the that ordinary citizens should defend the country from tyranny. Yes, yeah, so when I'm at a gun range shooting guns, it, it means a couple of different things to me. First of all, I just enjoy it. Uh, it's a fun sport trying to get the target. and But it also means that I know that I have the ability to protect my family if the I don't have to wait for the police to get there. I mean, obviously, I- if my home is assaulted, I'm going to call the police, but I don't have to be fully 100% dependent on them. I can also protect myself, and that's, uh, I think, something that's important. And then also, I know that if, and this doesn't seem likely to happen anytime soon at least, but if the government were to totally get out of hand and become extremely tyrannical enough that all of the citizens in America felt they needed to do something, we could because we all have the ability to protect ourselves. Again, that's something that is not likely to happen. But on the other hand, one of the reasons it's not likely to happen is because we do have all of these American citizens with guns who have been sort of trained in these ideals. Obviously, another bedrock American ideal is that the government exists at the will of the people, it, you know, by the people, for the people. And part of the reason why we, we think that that's, that's true at, at some deep level in America is because people are permitted and encouraged throughout American history to own firearms. That, that that shows that, that all this, as I said earlier, that all the strength and physical force isn't just in the hands of the government. And that's a way of putting teeth behind the assertion that the government exists at the will of the people. Now, I'm, I'm peeking over at your list, and I see that the next thing on your list is uh, federalism. Oh, have you gotten through personal freedom yet? Well, I think I, I, I in my list, I, I separated religious freedom and personal freedom because I wanted to emphasize that it's not just that in America you can go to where you want to go for worship at the synagogue, at the church, at the mosque, or just stay home and sleep in or go to Starbucks on Sundays. I also want to emphasize that in America, just the ideal of being able to move around in the world without restraints, uh, as, or, or not restraints, obviously you're restrained by law and you know, by other people around you, but without undue restraint. It's, it's not just about, again, for people who are religious or even for people who aren't religious, your moral and ethical convictions are the most central thing to you. But there are many other aspects of life in America that are, uh, we, we, America has done, I think, a pretty good job trying to give people just freedom in general. That's good. Now, now you and I both have federalism on our list next, so I want to talk about that. Uh, I, I like our federalist system. We have, we, we don't live in one single nation. We live in a state, and then there are 49 other states, and then there's a federal government that is, uh, at least as it's set up, it's supposed to be relatively modest in the way it exercises power and authority. Uh, it, it has 
overstepped that bounds, I believe. Uh, well, I think it's I think it sh- it's uncontroversial that the way the national government exists today is different from what the founders had in mind. I don't think anybody would, uh, in their right mind, would disagree with me there. Um, however, I do think that our federalist system ha- still accomplishes a lot of good. I like living in Indiana. I like the fact that I can vote for uh, state representatives, a state senator, and a governor, and they are the ones who are going to decide most of the, the day-to-day things that affect my life the most, the, the way we do education in this state, the way we do health care in this state, the way you know, our tax rate, our, whether we have property taxes, whether we have sales taxes, whether we have income tax and what those rates are. I think those are all, of course, uh, we you know end up paying a lot more federal taxes than, uh, than state taxes, but... Um, but still, s- things like property tax and education, healthcare, roads, those things, those decisions are all made at the local level where we do have more say and where it's the beautiful thing about America is that it's possible to have different solutions in different states. So maybe in one state, you just to pick a silly example, care a lot about roads and you want to charge high taxes and have really beautiful roads. And in another state, you care about low taxes. And so you let the roads suffer a little bit, but people are still able to get along. And then, you know, you can look at those two states. They can look at each other, see what worked, what didn't work. There are, you know, 48 other states doing the same uh, thing. And you can see what works best and what doesn't. And that helps everybody improve because everyone can sort of look at what everyone else is doing and, and see what it is that they like and what they don't. I think federalism is, is, is a very difficult idea to execute. And as Daniel was just saying, there are ways in which America has, has failed to execute it properly. But I think it goes back to the idea of freedom. Why, why even have federalism? And as Daniel was just saying, that really one of the major points of federalism is to let people in, in a local or state situation who have more access and more knowledge and, and proximity to a situation to be able to make some decisions. And federalism says that, yes, there are reasons to have a, a centralized power that we, we, you know, the founders didn't want America to be a bunch of tiny nation states warring with each other like a lot of European history was. They wanted s- to preserve the best elements of nation states and the best elements of large empires. And I think to a large extent... They succeeded by providing that that centralized structure for for things that are important, uh, like going to war, having a, a currency, things like that, while trying to let states make decisions about things like roads and education. So uh, we've talked about the way that our uh, government is set up and about uh, the freedoms we have. Uh, but then in addition to freedoms, and we've sort of alluded to this, also there are cultural issues, cultural mindsets, and, and also cultural heritage that we have um, that maybe are, are different from just the, the freedoms that we enjoy from the government or uh, that the government protects. But uh, things like the, the heritage that we have uh, of the Declaration of Independence, I th- I'm proud of that document. I'm proud of the idea that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that our country is founded on those ideals, that we can always point back to that, look back at that when we're thinking about what's right and wrong for government to do. Um, I think that's a wonderful heritage. Uh, and of course, that's it's appropriate to bring that up today because this, that's the very thing that we're celebrating. Um, I'm proud of the fact that America kind of helped uh, the world uh, with the cause of liberty and human rights. I think 
uh, and also the idea of having government that is of the people, by the people, and for the people. It's uh, America that not may, maybe didn't come up with the idea, but certainly helped popularize it. You could say um, in England was you know had a lot of rights that we. Uh, ended up codifying in our Bill of Rights that England already had in the common law. So it's not like it's not like freedom of speech didn't exist or like uh, the freedom from double jeopardy didn't exist uh, before uh, it was there in England, but America codified it in the Bill of Rights. But America also did a good job articulating the principles that maybe in England had sort of only existed in tradition, but in America they needed to be articulated because we were starting something new. And I think when we did articulate them in the revolution and in the Declaration of Independence and in the speeches that were given around that time, th that became a part of our heritage and our culture. But that, I think, also spread to the rest of the world and helped the rest of the world uh, become more open to liberty, to government of the people. I think we have more uh, republics and democratic governments now than we did before. And I think that is largely, uh, not exclusively attributable to America's influence, but I think that's a, a big part of it. And that's something I'm proud of. Well, if you look at the rise of democracies around the world, I think it's pretty easy to point to the United States as inaugurating that. The it, it, it was something really new in, in a way of organizing government. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I think you it, it's not a historical or a stretch to say that the United States is what started that. Well, what about the English parliamentary system? Because they, I mean, they had elected representatives, although I don't think the House of Lords was elected, but the House of Commons was. If I, I, I don't know my history very well. You might know more about this than I do. Well, I do have to say some, some nice words for, for England today. I, I know today is uh, a day when a lot of Americans jokingly make fun of England just to, you know... Uh, just set off their 4th of July celebration. Oh, and I'm going to do plenty of that later in this episode. Don't worry. But I am definitely what many people would probably call an Anglophile. I love Winston Churchill. I love the parliamentary system. And I'm not saying that that system didn't make advances toward ideals of freedom. And, of course, you could also say in some ways maybe harmed it through some of the colonial systems didn't necessarily... Uh, advanced freedom and, and sometimes American imperialistic attempts didn't do that either. But I think that there's value to concepts like a monarchy, the crown. I, I think that there, there's value to that. But I do think that the United States did something really different. There wasn't a crown. Th there wasn't an empire. And while there were certain elements of British parliamentary heritage that obviously Americans were using and mining um, for for things that are good that uh, I think the rise in democracies is largely attributable to the United States and I think America has affected England now one of the things you alluded to we there wasn't a monarchy there also in America there aren't classes um, and I think that's maybe becoming more and more true in England um, but I, I think America also, sort of, you you could say, maybe started that in some sense. We don't have a caste system. We don't have uh, the aristocracy and everybody else, the bourgeois and everybody else. We we all are legally and also culturally on the same playing field. Maybe not economically, so maybe it's harder for some people economically 
than others. Some people are born into wealth. Some people are born into poverty. But one of the beautiful things about America is is that even people who come here a- as immigrants uh, who have nothing, they can, and I'm not saying it always happens, and I'm not saying there aren't roadblocks and, and problems, but anybody can uh, achieve any level of status, economic status, political status, whatever. Uh, there are no real barriers other than sort of the natural economic barriers that that are already there when you're born. But but I think in America there's more mobility than in a lot of other countries. And I think what when we do see that mobility in other countries, again, some of it, not all of it, but maybe some of that is attributable to America's influence in the world. I think that's true. And one of the, the next thing that I had on my list actually was safety and, and prosperity. And again, going back to the, the, the Timothy passage, that, that peaceful and quiet life. And, and it's true that sadly for many, many people they throughout human history, they didn't live in the type of government that gave them anything close to the level of peace and prosperity that Americans have today. And of course, Wealth and safety comes with its own dangers. Uh, as Christians, you know, wealth and prosperity may harden our hearts to the importance of living in the way that God tells us. That, you know, the Bible, especially in the Gospels, has a lot to say about the dangers of riches. But I think we can also say that it's an obviously and demonstrably good thing when people have enough food to eat, when they have places to live, when they have. When they're able to do things that they enjoy, again, as a Christian, I think that God created us to make free choices, to enjoy the world around us. And I think America has done a wonderful job, and other countries around the world too, but I I am an American. And so I'm proud of the fact that America, ideals of freedom, has led to uh, economic systems that, while they're not perfect, they have brought about unprecedented levels of prosperity. And I think that you can make a direct line from ideals like religious freedom, personal freedom, to things like dishwashers and microwaves and (laughs) washers and dryers, that when people are freed up to do the things that they aspire to and dream about, that we have those those increases in prosperity and and quality of life. And I think that's a good thing. I think we invented the light bulb, the telephone, the car, the airplane, a lot of good uh, economic stuff has been coming out of America. Um, I, I do want to clarify, though, uh, what I said a minute ago about how we don't have a caste system. Of course, when this country was founded, there was one glaring exception to that uh, in slavery, and that took the Civil War to undo. But even then, uh, there were there were things like segregation that took a long time to fully undo that. Um, so, But I do think that embedded in the very founding was the notion that all men— are created equal, and so the the founding of America really, I think, found its fulfillment when slavery ended and when segregation ended. It's not like the founding itself was corrupt, and we had to do something radically different to change that. I think that was. I think slavery and segregation were glaring exceptions to this fundamental uh, truth that was at the heart of America's founding. Right, and, and that's why I, I've used the language of ideals a lot. We live in an imperfect world, and, and we you know live in an imperfect world in America that has been shaped by some of these these exceptions, these mistakes, these you know I would say sins to uh, these failures to treat other people in light of those ideals, which which are true. 
But I, I definitely think it's important not to throw out the ideals. The ideals are good, and they in themselves, and they've produced so much good. And I think that by, by looking at the good that they produced, I, again, I, I think they're good in their souls, but the, the good that they produced is, is really indisputable. Another thing I, I talked a little bit about how I, I think that America's founders tried to mine the systems of European government, uh, British government, other types of government, for what was good as they went about forming a new system. And I think that's really valuable. As conservatives, it, it comes from the name itself, we're focused on conserving. That doesn't mean that we think everything about American history is good. But we think that there's something there that should be conserved that's valuable that, that should be passed on. And we could have an equally long conversation about all of the things in America that make us uncomfortable. We could talk about slavery. We could talk about the atomic bomb. We could talk, you know, we could talk about a lot of these things. But today, we're talking about this uh, scripture that says, "Thanksgiving should be made for all people and for kings and rulers in high positions." And uh, specifically talking about how that applies to America and the things that we're thankful to God for about America. Not that there's nothing good, but that God has blessed us in so many ways by putting us in America. And so we're just listing some of the many things about it that we're thankful for. And that's why I don't think it's idolatrous or blasphemous or getting too much into the realm of, of civil religion to say that I'm, I'm thankful to God for a document like the Constitution. And we've talked about some elements of the Constitution, religious freedom and the legal rights and the type of culture that, that a document like the Constitution has created. But I want to talk a little bit about the Constitution itself. I think that there are other ways of organizing a government uh, a body politic that can be just you don't have basically i don't think every country in the world should have a word-for-word -word copy of the constitution translated into whatever language people of that country speak but what i like about the constitution is that it provides a framework for law it is a document that says, okay, here's the general system that we're going to aspire to. It, it lays out ideals. It also says, here's what we can do and cannot do. And it provides a discussion point for figuring out what kinds of laws we sh are permitted to be passed, what kinds of laws should be passed, what kind of laws can be passed, what the way in which they should be done. And I really like having that framework. Americans aren't necessarily bound by common ties of ethnicity or religion. Um, you know, as, as the, the, the common phrase likes to have in America as a nation of immigrants. But the Constitution is what unites us. It's that we've said, okay, this is the system of government that we're under. And this is our starting place for figuring out what laws should be passed and, and how we want to govern this country. And I really like having that framework. I think, you know, it can work if you kind of have more of an unwritten Constitution like they do in England and with with ideals and that you stand for like lots of different documents rather than one primary document like the constitution but i like the system of having one primary document that we can go to and argue about yes me too arguing about the constitution is so much fun um uh, another thing that of course this is a very dark chapter in our nation's history but the civil war i think also there is a lot of good there first of all we dealt with the problem of slavery um it took a lot of blood, but we dealt with it, and we no longer have it. Of course, now you know we no longer have segregation. Um, but I think another important thing about the way the Civil War w turned out has to do with states' rights and has to do with the 
the way that the southern states were integrated back and the fact that people who had rebelled uh, were not all tried and hanged for tyranny. They were brought back as fellow citizens. Um, the fact that in the U.S. Capitol right now, uh, every state has statues, I believe, of two uh, prominent people from that state. And if I remember right, when we went, I, I've only been there once, and it was a few years ago, but if I remember right, is it North Carolina that has a statue of uh, John C. Calhoun? No, that would be South Carolina. South Carolina, okay. And, and, and I think Jefferson Davis is also one of the statues, isn't he? I think so. I'm not sure if both of those statues are still there, but... But uh, anyway, the, the idea that the respect for states' rights is so great in America that our capital has statues of people who uh, led rebellion against the United States. I think that's a powerful testament to the sort of respect and uh, and moderate way that we deal with each other. Yeah, and, and I, I'm really, I, I'm, a, I'm a northerner through and through. <laughs> I love Abraham Lincoln. I, I definitely think that the, the Civil War was, was treasonous, um, as well as, you know, obviously, you know, slavery itself is wrong, but the Civil War, the, the act of removing, states removing from the United States was an act of treason. And even though there's so much of what Calhoun and, and, and Jefferson Davis thought and did with their lives that, that I really, really don't like, I think that that's something that, again, it, it, it goes back to freedom. That, that's really the best thing about being an American. If, if, if we had to give one word answer about what, what's the best thing about being an American, it, it's freedom. And freedom, even as I said about religious freedom, freedom to make the wrong decisions and to not, and again, that, that's going to lead to some tricky scenarios when you have an ideal of freedom, when you try to balance how other people's freedoms, like the, the freedom of a state to have its own statue, even if that, statue represents a person whose ideals were inimical to the very document upon which the country is based but it's still an ideal that that's worthy to strive for another thing i'm proud of as far as our heritage goes is uh world war ii i think america in, in a sense saved the world i mean i don't know how the i don't know how the war would have gone if america had not joined but i think it's indisputable that our forces were a very important part of stopping the Third Reich. Yeah, I, uh, Winston Churchill was desperate for Americans to join the war uh, and a little annoyed by the constitutional procedures that at that time were followed. He, he was bothered by the fact that Roosevelt didn't have more authority to just plunge the nation into war. But the fact that Winston Churchill thought it was so indispensable to have the United States on the side of the Allies I think says a lot about how important the the Allies' role were in defeating the Axis powers. And of course, on a bit of a personal note here, I, I can say another thing that I'm I, I'm proud of being the granddaughter of a World War II veteran. That's something that because I think that World War II is a reflection of the ideals of America, and that that's something that I'm proud of. Now, do you have anything else you want to say about the things on your list? I think we pretty much covered it. There's one one American buzzword that we haven't said a lot. Well, maybe two. And I'm just going to say those two words and talk a little bit about them to round out this discussion. And those words are responsibility. I did talk about that earlier with regard to Second Amendment and opportunity. 
And I think freedom, as I've said over and over, is an ideal that, that's good in itself. But the fruits of freedom are, are good as well. And freedom provides opportunity. I talked about the dishwashers, that people can do the kinds of things that they want to do. So freedom, responsibility, and opportunity. Freedom, just unbridled freedom on its own isn't, isn't a good thing. But freedom that leads to opportunity, that cultivates and creates opportunities, and freedom that is accompanied by responsibility. That, that's what it means to be an American. All right, so I have uh, I've finished most of what I want to say, but then there's also a couple of cultural things that are are just purely things that I enjoy, like uh, barbecue. You know, we have great barbecue in America, um, and I enjoy grilling and smoking. I enjoy the fact that people all over the nation are going to have their grills going this evening. It's going to be great. Um, I'm proud of the fact that we kicked England's butt in women's women's soccer last week. Or this week, or whenever it was, I didn't watch it because I'm an American and I don't watch soccer. <laughs> that's another thing I'm proud of. I'm proud of the fact that we have a sport that's so much better than soccer. Yeah, American culture has its ups and downs. Uh, I I've read, as I said, being a bit of an Anglophile, I've read a lot of British takes on American culture. That American culture is brash and unrefined, and you know, people are very direct, and there are not not you know as cultured or whatever as some other cultures, but. I like that about being American. I like that we're loud, obnoxious football fans. Although, of course, I'm sure that people in Europe are loud and obnoxious about soccer. But because I'm American, uh, now we, we got to say this for all you baseball fans out there: football is America's sport. We can argue about the Constitution, but we can't argue about that. <laughs> that's uh, that's true. Well, well, baseball is America's pastime. Football is America's sport. Baseball is something boring that a lot of Americans have decided that they want to like torture themselves on hot summer days doing. I feel I almost feel a little bit bad that I I don't like baseball more than I do because it is such a, an important part of America's culture, but I just can't hate myself enough to make myself care about baseball. I was recently um sometime when I guess there were no football games going uh, during football season last year. I I was listening to the radio as I was driving somewhere, and uh, it was a baseball game. And I thought, okay, this is great. I'm going to enjoy a baseball game over the radio, uh, th the way that it you know was for a lot of people. Uh, and so I listened to this baseball game, and the announcers themselves seemed bored out of their minds. The announcers, whose job it is to get you interested, they seemed like they were about to fall asleep. Be too mean to baseball because I did grow up going to a lot of minor league baseball games and it was it was a nice family activity and my dad does like baseball but I just think it's 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 indisputable that that football is better and indisputable that more Americans like and watch football and that a season that occurs from September to February is preferable to a season that goes from like I don't know January to October or however long the baseball season lasts. I don't even know. Uh, I, I was on my last episode with Chris Green. He told me that uh, that the World Series is called the Fall Classic, so that can help me remember that it happens in the fall. So I guess baseball season ends sometime in the fall. Yeah, and I'm slightly jealous that they have a longer season, but it's also like it's it's during a – I know people, oh, summer evening at the ballpark. That's just, you know, hot and sweaty. I'd rather be freezing at a football game in November. <laughs> All right. Well, we can't hit, hit on baseball too much because this is a, a – a, an episode about how much we love America, but um, I, I do want to say another thing about uh, the 
game against England in that women's soccer. Did you see this? Uh, apparently, the the woman who scored the winning goal uh, in her celebration. Uh, she pretended to drink a cup of tea with her pinky out and all that. And uh, some people saw that as making fun of English for the way that they drink tea. Uh, I thought that was kind of entertaining. Well, I, I, I do really like tea. But my, my final thought about, as I said earlier, the, the, the reason, the ultimate reason why it's good to be American is because of freedom. It's not the only free country in the world, but in my opinion, it's the best. And the other reason why I, I choose to like being American is because it, it's my culture, it's it's my heritage. And I, I think that that's a good thing to, to do is to like the culture, to try to look at the best and, and mind for what's good and the culture that you came from. The main reason why people like their families, if, if they do like their families, is because it's their family. It's not that their family is necessarily better than any other families. But loving what's yours, loving the situation that you happen to be in, I think is a good is a good thing to do. So going back to those those Thanksgivings, the, the having Thanksgivings for the the blessings and the benefits that we have as American citizens. It's good to do that and it, and it's good to be to be grateful for the situation that we are in. That's a good point. I I think loving your own is a very important part of what it means to be a conservative, but I think it's also uh an important Christian ideal because isn't that what gratitude is, is loving what you have and being grateful for what you have, not uh, thinking about how much better something else would be. And uh, when we are grateful for the traditions that we've inherited over a long a period of many decades, centuries even, then we are both being grateful for what we have and also respecting our elders who came before us and and those to whom we owe so much. Also, if you're reformed or, or have any belief in the sovereignty of God, if you're a Christian, you think that there's a reason why God made you an American, that that's something, that that's, that's a part of who you are that should be uh, hopefully directed and used for God's good purposes. So I think that's a nice segue into David Platt, talking about David Platt and Franklin Graham and the way in which their identities as Americans and as Christian pastors um, intersect. And I think that David Platt, just spoiler alert, does have a good understanding of how those identities intersect and uh, allowing his gratefulness to be an American and his responsibilities as an American to not be in conflict and to align with his responsibilities as a Christian. So this is something that happened um, about a month ago now, but because we are, uh, because it's the 4th of July and because we're Christians and uh, American citizens who love America, we wanted to talk about it because it's a, it relates to how Christians ought to approach living in a nation. And uh, um, I guess specifically, th this isn't entirely just about how Christians should approach patriotism and things like that, but specifically uh, being partisan in politics or, or taking sides. And of course, you know, I think as Christians, we are called to be active in politics to some degree, um, at least in America where we are citizens and we have some responsibility to try to work for the good of the nation where we live. So I, I don't think it's wrong for Christians to be involved in politics. And I, of course, that means that we're going to agree with some people more than others. So I, I don't think that that's um, a problem at all. So what happened a month ago, just for context, is Franklin Graham, the president of Samaritan's Purse, 
called for a national day of prayer on June 2nd to pray for President Trump. The way that he did it was sort of intended to be nonpartisan, but like also pretty partisan. And even though I agree with, uh, I agree with Franklin Graham's politics. I think a lot of the time, I think he's tends to be conservative, like I am. Um, he, you know, doesn't fully support everything Trump does, but did uh, endorse him and did vote for him. Just you know, I, I voted for him as well. Um, and I, so I, I agree with Franklin Graham's politics a lot. However, I was uncomfortable with his partisan tone because of his position. I don't think it's wrong for a Christian as a citizen to take sides and be partisan. We have to do that if we're going to vote and if we're going to participate in uh, politics at all. However, I was bothered by the fact that he used his position as the head of a Christian mercy ministry, Samaritan's Purse, which is designed to help uh, poor people, victims of disasters all around the world in the name of Jesus, that in doing so, he taints the message of the gospel with the message of support for Trump's policies. Yeah, the sentence that that bothered me, the email that, that Franklin Graham sent out announcing this day of prayer, most of the email, I would say, was relatively unobjectionable. The sentence in the email that, that bothered me is it said, in the history of our country, no president has been attacked as he, referring to President Trump, has. Now, this sentence was immediately followed by a sentence that is, as I said, uh, unobjectionable. It says, I believe the only hope for him in this nation is God. But I think the point of saying in, in the history of our country, no president has been attacked as he has, that, that is advocating a sympathetic position for Trump. And one that it, it, it's, it's a very, um, the second sentence, I believe the only hope for him in this nation is God. If you're a Christian, that sentence, that, that there's no arguing with that sentence. Obviously, the only hope for a nation is God. The, the Bible says that. But the other sentence uh, is something that you could definitely argue with. I mean, the first thing I thought when I read that is, I think, I mean, the president, my personal opinion about the president who's received the most pushback and flack for how he's handled situations is Abraham Lincoln. I mean, just Google uh, cartoons from the Civil War era, and you'll see a lot of really heinous and hideous things said about Abraham Lincoln. So the reason why I think that this is objectionable is that it's saying President Trump is in a special need of our support because he's being attacked. And it really, depending on your perspective, that statement may not be true. And so it's infusing something partisan, like trying to, you know, have Trump's back, be sympathetic toward him, rather than talking about our, our simple duty to pray for our leaders, regardless of whether we agree with them. And again, as a, as a Christian and as a citizen, He's completely entitled to that opinion and, and to advocate for that opinion, but using his platform as the leader of an international Christian mercy ministry, he is uh, mixing the message, which may be a good message. Maybe he disagrees. And, and I think he even said that this has to do with the like Democratic calls for impeachment and things like that. But the f you, know, you can have a lot of different opinions about uh, the Robert Mueller report or about, you know, collusion with Russia, about impeachment, about the, uh, Trump's immigration policies, about Trump's economic policies. You can have all sorts of opinions about that, which may or may not be right, but that are still 
not inconsistent with the gospel, and to, it, it's wrong to try to uh, make it seem like Christians can only have one view of uh, the Mueller report or of uh, Trump's, uh, you know, a- anything to do with uh, Trump. So I think that's uh, maybe what bothers us about this this email, even though I, I tend to agree with uh, Franklin Graham that um, Trump's policies overall have been better for the countries than, say, Obama's, although, you know, there are some exceptions. Um, but overall, I would certainly say from the Supreme Court justices he appointed, for example, to uh, the fact that he hasn't, well, you know, I, I wasn't a big fan of Obamacare. I don't think it has been good for health care in this country, and, you know, Trump didn't do something like that. Obama did. So, um, so, so I think Trump has been better for the country than Obama. However, a- and in Franklin Graham's, and this is good for him, he also, when Obama was president, issued a call to prayer as well. Um, this He didn't pick a specific day and try to get uh, churches all across the nations to pray with him, but he wrote an article on, uh, I think, in connection with the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, about the importance of praying for our leaders. Um, but the tone of this article about Obama was sort of, uh, we're supposed to pray for our leaders even the, even when they don't agree with us. Um, and he talked about how God can change hearts and minds, implying that God can change the hearts and minds of President Obama and his followers. In this email that he sent about President Trump, he said God can change, soften hearts and change minds, referring to the people who are attacking Trump. So he's clearly y- y- being partisan in this in this call to prayer, which I, I think is a problem. Yeah, and I think that there's, there's a, a difference between Christians can have a wide range of political opinions. To, to go back to what we were talking about earlier, you can be a Christian and think, hey, the parliamentary system in England is the best, whereas another Christian might think the constitutional system is the best. There's not really a, this is a Christian way to organize government, or this is a Christian policy. Now, of course, there are some, there are some things that the Bible does state directly that uh, I would have a hard time saying that a Christian could be behind certain policies. But for things like health care or, or even economic things, a, l- a lot of economic things, uh, there are Christian principles that should be applied to that, but there isn't a Christian position. So as an individual Christian, uh, a- and, and even like if he were a Christian who was in charge of a political organization, obviously he could promote whatever political ideals he wanted. But if you're talking about wanting Christians of all political stripes to unite, that's that that's really you can't say that there's a christian position on healthcare or a christian position on capitalism even though christian values do inform that so what is in that respect it is important to be nonpartisan when you're making calls to unite all christians and that's what i think david platt did a good job about he prayed in such a way that followed the biblical commands to pray for leaders without making it sound like the Christian position is pro-Trump or anti-Trump. Yeah, so let's just read a little bit of what... um, I don't have a text of what David Platt said right before his prayer, um, but I have the text of his uh, prayer here. And and it was a surprise. He didn't know that this was coming, and I thought he handled it very well. I think he overthought it a little bit afterward. I I think he... Some people criticized him for it, and he issued a statement later that night clarifying then the following week he said some more things to clarify it um i I think he was just overthinking it. i think what he did was was fine i I will address in in a few minutes when we've talked a little bit more about the prayer one one of the potential one of the the only valid concerns i think from this type of prayer 
Yeah. But um, but let, let me just read a little bit about what he said. Oh, God, we praise you as the one universal king overall. You are our leader and our Lord, and we worship you. There is one God and Savior, and it's you, and your name is Jesus. And we exalt you, Jesus. We know we need your mercy. We need your grace. We need your help. We need your wisdom in our country. And so we stand right now on behalf of our president, and we pray for your grace and your mercy and your wisdom upon him. God, we pray that he would know how much you love him, so much that you sent Jesus to die for his sins, our sins. So we pray that he would look to you, that he would trust in you, that he would lean on you, that he would govern and make decisions in ways that are good for justice and good for righteousness and good for equity, every good path. I want to point out that I want to go back to that passage from 1 Timothy and read a little bit of it. It says, first of all, I urge, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. So obviously, in the text of that, it's clear that if our leaders don't know Christ, that we should be praying them for them to know Christ because the passage says who desires all people to be saved, all people including our kings. And I also, it's important to say that this passage isn't just a passage as, oh, pray for kings. You're, it's praying for, you can, you're supposed to pray for your, your country as a whole, the citizens of it, people everywhere. And, but, uh, you know, in this context, we're focused on praying about our, our, our fellow citizens. So I think that when he says, God, we pray that he would know how much you love him, so much that you sent Jesus to die for his sins, our sins. He's doing that he's he's employing the 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 structure of the first timothy passage and how it says we should both be praying for all people and for the leaders to come to the knowledge of god it's really it reflects that passage very well yeah now he continues lord we pray we pray that you would give him all the grace he needs to govern in ways that we just saw in first timothy 2 um, before this prayer he talked with his congregation about first timothy 2 and how it calls us to pray for our leaders and he said you know we have a unique opportunity to do that now because trump just showed up unexpectedly you know knocking on the door so to speak said you know please please pray for me so here he is i guess i guess we'll go ahead and do this first timothy 2 thing and that was essentially the the gist of his his remarks before the prayer uh where he read the passage and, and talked a little bit about it so he says, uh, you know, give him all the grace he needs to govern in ways that we just saw in First Timothy 2 that lead to peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. God, we pray for your blessing uh, in that way upon his family. We pray that you would give them strength. We pray that you would give them clarity, wisdom. Wisdom, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Please, O oh God, give him wisdom and help him to lead our country alongside other leaders. We pray for today for leaders in Congress. We pray for leaders in courts. We pray for leaders in national and state levels. Please, O oh God, help us to look to you. Help us to trust in your word. Help us to seek your wisdom and live in ways that reflect your love and your grace, your righteousness and your justice. We pray for your blessings on our president toward that end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I mean, that's, that's a prayer that you could pray for any president at all. Yeah, and any other political leader. Again, going back to the passage, it says, for kings and all who are in high positions. Now, I think the thing, the only thing, I, you know, I again, I, w I think that David Platt handled a tricky on-the-spot scenario uh, a as a pastor should. But I'm going to go to what, what I said I was going to talk about, which is the, a potential concern here. And one of the concerns is, is church is it, right outside D.C. There are potentially members of Congress or, or other people in political positions who are attending this church. And so I think a little bit of talking about what praying for a leader should look like, I think it can take on many forms. But if you wouldn't have a member of Congress on stage 
every week. Um, it, but but you would if the president shows up unexpectedly have him on stage. Is there a sense in which that's acting as if praying for the president is more important because of his greater fame or, or position of power? And I'm going to read from something a Christian writer um, named Jonathan Merritt said on Twitter. He said, um, this is from June 5th, he said, I believe in an open table, meaning that he thinks that anybody who wants to have communion uh, can, can have communion. And it, this is part of the context is he's saying that if he were a pastor and Trump had come to his church, he would say, I'm not going to pray for you on stage, but you're welcome to receive communion. Now, I personally would not, I do not believe in an open table. I, well, I believe in an open table in the sense that anyone who's Christian can come to the table. But I'm not sure I would handle it that way. But, but that aside, that theological issue aside, um, Merritt continues, I'd say he needs the grace of the sacrament as much as anyone. I also wouldn't withhold prayer from him. But I wouldn't offer a public prayer in a church assembly just because someone is, is famous or powerful. And, and I, I, really, I, I really identify with, understand, share um, Jonathan Merritt's concern. Because if a state representative came up to a megachurch pastor and said, hey, can you do some First Timothy 2 prayer for me on stage in front of everybody, take up, you know, 10 minutes of your congregation's time, was, is that something that the pastor would necessarily be willing to do? Yeah, and, and uh, I think w the fact that he used the word famous is really interesting. So, so that we shouldn't offer public prayer in a church assembly just because somebody's famous or powerful. That reflects very well the principles that James talks about, where he says don't show favoritism to you know, a rich man over a poor man. And, and it made me think, okay, let's say, so I'm a big Colts fan. My pastor also happens to be a big Colts fan. Let's suppose that Frank Reich, uh, the coach of the Indianapolis Colts, who is also a Christian, also happens to be in, in our own denomination, was a pastor in that denomination uh, for a while. Let's say that he walked into our church in West Lafayette. If he's in West Lafayette on a Sunday and it's not during football season, I wouldn't actually be surprised if that were to happen because, again, it's, it's his denomination. So let's say he walks into our church and we say, look, here's Frank Reich. He's a coach of the Indianapolis Colts. He has an important ministry. He's, uh, you know, uh, showing the light of Christ in the world of the NFL. Let's come pray for him on stage because he's doing God's work, you know, in a a secular environment. Well, let's. Um, if we were to do that, we would be showing partiality, the kind that James talks about in chapter two, where he says, "My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? See, because we don't pray for every uh, visitor who walks in on stage publicly, it wouldn't be appropriate to pray for a, leader, uh, a, a Christian visitor on stage publicly just because he happens to be famous, even if he's somebody that you know we like. So that's a distinction that I think Jonathan Merritt is right to be worried about. However, President Trump isn't the coach of a football team. He's the president of the United States, and we are called specifically in the Bible to pray for our political leaders in particular. And so I think it is very appropriate to have a political leader come up on stage and pray for him 
as a way to show, um, well, not, not just to show, but to actually do, to do this thing that we're called to do, to, to pray for our political leaders, and also to show the congregation how we should approach political leaders. Yes, and on, on Jonathan Merritt's post, there were a few people from more high church traditions who responded that, suggesting that maybe a more fitting way to, to pray for a president that doesn't involve this sort of dramatic going up on stage and, and a way that, that sort of, and now I think Daniel's just refuted some of that, what, why praying for Trump is different from praying for Frank Reich, but that um, that, that these, these Anglican or other high church people suggested that the form of the liturgy from the Book of Common Prayer or other liturgical sources has a way to pray for leaders to follow that command in First Timothy without making it seem like you're just having the famous man come up on stage and, and following that prescripted format of every week you're going to say, well, we pray for our President Donald and our Vice President Mike, you know, and uh, other leaders, our governor, you know. Most of us have probably been in services. Our, our church doesn't follow a, a liturgy that, that formally, but D Daniel and I have both definitely attended church services where prayers like that have been offered, where the governor, the president, uh, and other leaders have been mentioned by name, or that there have been there's been a uh, more general prayer in the liturgy, just that we're going to pray for our leaders. Not you know not every high church liturgy necessarily mentions leaders by name, and I can see that argument to some degree. I also don't think that. Or necessarily bound there, you know. The, to me, there's nothing about the passage that suggests that this is the way that those prayers have to happen. Um, what do you think, Daniel? So, when you say you can see that argument to some degree, do you mean the argument that we shouldn't pray for leaders on stage? We should just pray for them as part of our sort of normal prayers without bringing them up onto the stage? Yes, uh, yes. That not not bringing them up on stage, and that that when it's corporate prayer you can you know pray however you want to in private but when it's corporate prayer it follows a prescribed form one that you know it's going to sound the form of the prayer is going to be the same regardless of you know you're going to uh four years ago you would have been praying for our, our president barack and our vice president joe that the form is the same of the prayer is the same regardless of the president and and that maybe that helps it seem more nonpartisan. well i think that's in one way to do it but i think david platt did a very good job praying in a way that was nonpartisan, unlike, you know, the way Frank, uh, not Frank Reich, Franklin Graham, <laughs> unlike the way Franklin Graham talked about it, which did seem partisan because he, uh, when it was Barack Obama, he said, you know, we should pray for Obama because Paul said that we should pray for our leaders, even though Nero was the president or the, the emperor or whatever he was. Um, so he's there. He's in a sense, I mean, not really, but like, drawing a very loose connection between Obama and Nero, whereas, on the other hand, he's saying we should pray for Donald Trump because he's facing attack. You know, that's obviously partisan. I think David Platt did a very good job not being partisan. Uh, on, as far as the issue of... So, so I don't think you need to have it in your liturgy and pray in exactly the same words every time to avoid being partisan because I think David Platt did an excellent job of that. But as far as the issue of bringing somebody up on stage, I think that could be a concern. You know, you, you mentioned earlier, would you bring any state representative up on stage? And let's say, you know, a state representative wants to run for governor and wants a bigger platform, um, goes up to this church and says, hey, please pray for me as a state representative. Then suddenly you're up on stage, everyone's seeing you, um, everyone knows who you are, and there's some sort of, I don't know, maybe 
feeling of, of endorsement or, or you get a boost, uh, a platform from this. I don't think we have to worry about giving Trump a platform. <laughs> I think at this church, uh, bringing him up on the stage gave the church a platform. It did not give Trump a platform. So I don't think that that's a concern in this case that we need to worry about. Right. Now, I think the difference between maybe more ad hoc praying for leaders when they request it or when they, they happen to come to your church, I think the that is a matter that y obviously you have to use discernment, whereas in a, when you've decided to use this liturgy that's going to be naming the president or the vice president, the governor, or the senators, other leaders, you've already decided that that's the format. You've already discerned, made, 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 made a... Uh, figured out how, how are you going to discern that issue. So I think really that the main benefit that comes from a more liturgical approach is that you're making sure that you're doing it corporately every week. And again, the, the, there's not an explicit command in scripture that in corporate worship each week you must pray for your leaders. But that's what I think is the main benefit of a more liturgical approach to prayers for leaders is that it is happening every week uh, when you do that. So are you saying that you would lean more toward doing that than doing what David Platt did? No, I just wanted to point out what I think the advantage of it is. I think the advantage of it is not that it's uh, necessarily like the better way to do it because it's more, as I said, I, I went through some of the arguments for why that it might be perceived as being better. There's a prescribed form for the prayer, but we agree that David Platt, given a moment's notice, was still able to pray something that was nonpartisan. So I don't think the fact that it has this set format necess like necessarily makes it better. I think the main advantage of it would be the fact that it you're doing it every week. It's part of your regular worship practices. So what do you think we can learn from this situation about how Christians should approach politics and approach uh, being citizens in this nation? I think that it's not necessarily the case that every time any political leader asks any pastor, as we were just talking about, what is somebody, you know, there, there, there may be mixed motives involved if somebody wants to boost the campaign for governorship, but that it should be something that we're wanting to do in our churches, and we don't, we can do that in a variety of ways. We can do it in a more high church way. We can do it in a more low church way, but that as citizens, we should be making sure to pray for our leaders and not just pray for our leaders, but also give thanksgiving for the particular blessings of the country that we happen to live in. So this passage is, you know, you, you, you can see many different expositions of this passage all around the internet, all around in many books. But I think that the thanksgiving part is, is probably something that is maybe a bit overlooked more. It's, I think what I've heard more often is that there's this command to pray for our leaders. And so I think that it's important. What we can learn as citizens is, we should be grateful for whatever blessings there are in whatever country we happen to inhabit. And, and most countries, there's at least something good. Um, may, maybe even the only good thing is that living in that country increases our dependence on Christ and gives us a sense that this is not our forever home, that our citizenship is in heaven. Maybe that's the only thing, but we can still be thankful for that, that, that the situation of that country points us to that. So... This is more than simply saying that there's no sort of discordance between our identity as Americans or citizens of any country and our identity as, as Christians, but that something like the 4th of July, 
while we always need to be careful when religion and, and politics intersect, there's a lot of tricky issues. You know, we haven't even touched on things like American flags and services or really incorporating a lot of patriotic elements and services. But that a holiday like the 4th of July it is a something that ref makes you reflect on what you enjoy, appreciate, are grateful for about being an American. In a way, that's following what Paul says in First Timothy. So may maybe that can make you feel happier when you're having uh, hot dogs and looking at fireworks. Yeah, and, and James says that every good and perfect gift comes from above. Every good and perfect gift includes American cultural traditions like uh, baseball, which is a good gift, and football, which is a perfect <laughs> gift, <laughs> um, and uh, you know it includes it includes hot dogs, it includes hamburgers and barbecue, it includes constitutions, it includes cultural milieus that value freedom, and it includes um, the, the having commonality with your fellow citizens, and it includes having leaders who protect you, and uh, the freedom to bear arms, all of those kinds of things. And so I think if every good and perfect gift comes from above, I think we are right to be grateful for them and to thank God for them. And I think that that's something that we can, like you said, do this evening. Well, uh, having having said all of that, uh, I, I think I'm going to have to close for now and make a cake that is shaped like an American flag, uh, putting all these principles into practice. <laughs> all right. Sounds good. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, um, you should, I don't know, not subscribe because I don't have a subscribe button on my website. And I, don't have, I don't know how to make one. But if you send me an email through my, my form on my website, I will let you know and ask me to sort of add you to my subscriber list. And I can email you every time I release a new episode. Uh, so go ahead and do that if you want. Um, also, uh, another thing to do if you enjoy this podcast is to bookmark it. Because right now, my website address uh, is complicated and hard to remember. I don't yet know how to make it easier. I would like to figure out how to uh, how to get my podcast on iTunes or Spotify, but it involves something like an RSS feed, and I think you have to have a website to set up an RSS feed, and I don't know how to do all of that. So if you know how to do that, if you, if you technology better than I do, uh, send me an email to let me know <laughs> uh, how to do that. And if you don't technology, then for now, just... Uh, Get the website uh, on your bookmark so you can keep checking back uh, more easily and don't have to keep uh, sending me text messages to ask me what my website's name is. Uh, so, yeah, go ahead and bookmark it. It's uh, pfftpodcast.wixsite.com slash listen. That's my address for now, and we'll see uh, whether that's the case for the long run in the future. But anyway, thank you very much for listening. Have a very happy Independence Day, and I'll see you next time.